Hi, I'm Marsha Milgram Dodge. I'm a director and choreographer. I've worked on productions from Sesame Street to Encore Disney Plus, Ragtime on Broadway, and you're listening to Kyle on the Isle. Greetings and welcome to Kyle on the Isle. I'm Kyle Olson. Today, we're joined by a true powerhouse in the world of theater and television. Marsha Milgram Dodge is a Tony Award nominee for Best Direction of a Musical for her stunning work in Ragtime. Marsha has left an indelible mark on the industry with her dynamic and innovative approach to direction and choreography. Her talents extend beyond the stage and into television, where she choreographed an Emmy award-winning episode of Sesame Street and directed numerous productions for the hit Disney Plus show, Encore. With a career spanning decades, Marsha has worked with some of the biggest names in theater and television, bringing stories to life through her visionary direction and choreography. Today, we'll explore Marsha's journey, her creative process, and the impact she's had on the performing arts. Join us as we step into the spotlight with a master of the stage and screen, whose work continues to inspire and awe audiences all around the world. So put your hands together and get on your feet for Marsha Milgram Dodge. And action! Marsha Milgram Dodge, welcome to Kyle on the Isle. We are so happy to have you here today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, I mean, gosh, when you look at people in this industry who are incredibly talented, triple threat award winners, I mean, it doesn't get much more packed when it comes to resumes in this industry than yours. You have had a heck of a career in entertainment, showbiz, theater, television, kind of all of it. And I know that the people that are listening to this episode who are tuning in today are very excited to hear about all of it. And so I feel like it's fitting to start at the very beginning and kind of first start by talking about how did you first become interested in this crazy world that we call showbiz? I know. What a crazy world. Well, I grew up in Detroit and every Sunday morning, we watched a television show that was broadcast out of Windsor, Ontario, and it showed old movies. And Shirley Temple movies were the thing. And I grew up as a little kid in Detroit in a Jewish middle class neighborhood, tap dancing and running around and dreaming of dancing with Bill Robinson. So I got into show business through my feet and I danced all through college. And it was when I went to Michigan at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, my parents were big theater fans. So 
they would take us. And we used to see a lot of the shows that toured before they went to Broadway. Like I saw The Wiz before it went to New York. And mm. I would see national tours and Fiddler on the Roof with Zero Mostel. In those days, the stars went on the road. It's not right. that way anymore, right? So we got all the big stars and we got all the big shows in the Fisher Theater in Detroit, Michigan. And I went to Ann Arbor and I just danced. I went into the dance department. I studied modern. I learned every technique I could learn and choreograph anything I could get my hands on through the sophomore musicals and theater company and through the school. And there was no musical theater program back then, not like they have now. And I just wanted to choreograph. That was the thing I wanted to do more than anything. And met my now husband, but then boyfriend, and we left Ann Arbor and we went to New York. And I just hit the pavement, bought yeah. Backstage Magazine, and I'd look in the ads. And if it said choreographer TBD, I sent my resume and I was really, I'm a salesman's daughter. So mm. it was sort of tell them who you are. And so that's what I did. Right. And 46 years later, I'm still doing it. <laughs> and the way to get the job has not changed. It still ah. is pounding the pavement and yep. meeting people and reaching out. I've walked into audition rooms and knocked on doors and said, I want to meet the artistic director of this theater. And I'm Marjorie Milgram Dodge and I want to work at your theater. <laughs> and so, and it's become a running joke with a producer that I work with a lot down in Florida. And he tells that story every first rehearsal. I've been working <laughs> for him since the early 2000s. Anyway, so I'm a go-getter and I say yes to everything. I call myself Ada Annie. I say, I'm the girl who can't say no. <laughs> when it comes to jobs, I'll take any, right. I'll take it. If it scares me, then great, even better, because then I have to figure it out and wrestle mm -hmm. with it and go through the phases of I'm not worthy. And why did I say yes? And they're going to find out I don't know anything. And they're going to be really upset when they realize they should have hired somebody else. You know, I go through all that sort of anxiety, <laughs> right? Like, and right. then somehow after all of that, I come out and go, I know how to do this. Yeah. I know exactly how to do this. Which is such a rewarding feeling, right? So when you talk about these inspirations and kind of influences from a young age, whether it was watching the theater or watching television, was there a particular production that was the moment that maybe became the light bulb in your head that said, oh man, this is what I want to do. You know, I went to dance class and I was lucky to be in sort of group classes. And then I was good enough to have a semi-private class with one other student. And so at the recitals, we were the finale. And mm. there was just something about performing that I loved, but I also loved the struggle of learning the steps. Like I would come home from class and be very upset that I didn't master the technique the first time. And right. then I would get to the front porch and my mom would accompany me to all those classes knitting. She'd sit in the corner at the studio. And knit. <laughs> so you'd hear tapping and knitting needles. It was kind of kooky. <laughs> And then I would get to the front porch and go, I got it. So I think it was really inevitable for me to become a behind the scenes person because 
I like to take it apart and put it back together again. And I was always a little too chubby for the pink tights in the ballet class. And, you know, I never sort of had the dancer body that you see, obviously now body types and acceptance of body types is shifting, which is Mm -hmm. awesome. But back in the seventies, when I was auditioning for a chorus line on Broadway, on the stage of the Schubert theater, standing on the white line, I was told by the casting director, you're too fat. Mm. So I didn't think dancing on Broadway was going to be for me, but I was undaunted because I thought, I don't even want to be on stage. I want to be in the theater telling everybody what to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's right. Fine. I don't want to be here anyway. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I landed in New York at a really pivotal time in the regional theater movement. Because musicals weren't done in regional theaters till about the early 80s. The Guthrie Mm -hmm. Theater in Minneapolis did Guys and Dolls. And all of a Mm -hmm. sudden, Arena Stage and La Jolla Playhouse and the Old Globe and Goodman Theater in Chicago, all these major theaters went, oh, what is this musical? You mean you don't just have to do Chekhov and Tennessee Williams (laughs) and Eugene O'Neill? We can actually sell tickets and make money and then put the money back into the more risky projects. So I got to New York late seventies, early eighties, when regional theaters were going, we need a choreographer. What is this weird thing called a choreographer? And (laughs) my resume was on everybody's desk. And I met Ira Weitzman, who was the associate producer at Playwrights Horizons. Now it's at Lincoln center. And my resume landed on his desk and he gave it to Richard Maltby and I choreographed Closer Than Ever, this wonderful musical review that we did at the Cherry Lane. And the same season, I did a new Bill Finn musical at the Public Theater under the producing genius of Joe Papp himself. And then regional theater started calling Ira, like, we need a choreographer. And he's like, call Marsha Milgram Dodge. So I was in the right place at the right time. And I was really, really lucky. And I was able to develop my craft on the job. You know, I didn't Mm. go to graduate school and I didn't study directing per se. I just intuitively felt like I knew where I was headed through the dancing, through the choreographing. Yeah. So it sounds like you learned more on location than you did through kind of the traditional schooling. Yeah. And with great directors. So I got to work with Des Mackinoff and Bob Falls and Del Blager, who was running Arena Stage, and a few other sort of significant regional theater directors who really allowed me to sort of learn the whole thing from soup to nuts. So that was my graduate school. You know, it's hard to tell young directors now to follow my path because my path was so specific to a particular time. And I didn't even know about graduate degrees in directing. It wasn't even on my radar back then. Right, right, right. Well, I'm glad you brought up your resume because not only, obviously, was it a big part of you kind of shopping around when you were first looking for work, but your resume as it stands today, after all of your years so far in the industry, it's pretty stacked. Let me let me just go through and name a few of the things that are on your resume here. 
American show director for Tokyo Disneyland's 40th anniversary daytime parade, Harmony in Color, director of the groundbreaking production of Disney's Beauty and the Beast, director of the St. Louis regional premiere of Beautiful, the Carol King musical, Edgar Award-nominated playwright for Sherlock Holmes and the West End Horror, co-written by your husband, which is exciting, launched Directing Musicals, a private studio for training early career directors and actors, choreographed the Emmy Award-winning episode of Sesame Street for the Tango Festival, Tony nominee for Ragtime, the list goes on. If we read the whole thing, we would probably run out of time on the podcast. <laughs> it's exhausting, Kyle. It's exhausting. It's like 25 pages. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. It kind of is, though. <laughs> also, I must add that not only is your resume incredible, but on top of all that, probably the cherry on top, in my opinion, is that if you're ever in New York City and you need a pizza place... This is the woman to ask because I was in New York in January and I put out on Facebook that I need a pizza place in New York. And within like 10 minutes, not only had you responded, but it was literally the most perfect pizza place. Was it? Do you remember which one it was? Uh, it, it was in the old theater. I forgot what it's called. Was it John's? Yes. John's amazing pizza amazing atmosphere oh so good and around the corner from john's is la familia and it's like a hole in the wall and my husband and i whenever we're going to the theater and we don't want to eat a whole big meal that's where we go because you just get a slice yeah see there you go she knows all the secrets and all of the hot spots in new york so with all of this, that is your resume, your portfolio, and just your general wonderfulness, <laughs> I want to pick apart some of these projects that you've worked on. And I would love to start by talking a little bit about the time that you spent somewhere that I am very jealous of, which is that you've spent time on one of the most famous streets in the world, Sesame Street. Oh, you know, it was everything in the theater is the person you're working with at the time and then the next job kind of comes out yeah. of it. And I did a musical version of the little rascals at the Goodspeed opera house. And Michael Lohman wrote the book and Joe Raposo who created it isn't easy being green and all those classic Sesame street songs wrote the music and lyrics. So we're up at the Goodspeed Opera House doing The Little Rascals and Dulé Hill played Stymie. Oh, wow. There's a name drop. Yeah. And Jenna Von Oy played Darla. I don't know if you remember her from Blossom. Wow. But anyway, they were kids. You know, they were 10 and 12 years old or something. And they said, can you come and choreograph an episode for Sesame Street? It's called the Tango Festival and it's going to shoot on this day. And Michael Lohman says, you're great, and you should come and do this. And I'm like, great. I hang up the phone. I call them right back, and I go, do they have legs? <laughs> oh, my God, I'm doing a tango with no legs. <laughs> so, so they go, no, they have no legs. And I went, oh, okay, got it. Thank you. So I actually have video of the Tango Festival on my YouTube channel. 
and I'll send it to you, but it is adorable. And Sherry Netherland, you know, it was her hotel and she was a big puppet, almost human size. And there was this rabbit bellhop and we did this crazy little tango with him. And at some point she like twirled him into the wings and you heard a crash. And then he comes running back in with a rose in his teeth. Oh, wow. And it was just a lot of heads bobbing back and forth and doing all the rhythmic stuff. But I had so much fun and it was so great. It was crazy. And it got an Emmy nomination. The letter of the day was T and it was the Tango Festival. And there were all these different things surrounding the episode. But the finale was this big dance. And I did a little tango with a couple of the human actors on the show as well. And it led to another opportunity, which was Elmo's Wild Wild West, which so many of my friends' kids have grown up on. And I got to work with the Noodle family. And it was Mr. Noodle, Bill Irwin, Mr. Noodle's brother, Mr. Noodle, Michael Jeter, and Mr. Noodle's sister, Miss Noodle, Kristen Chenoweth. Oh, sure. And we got to do this little Wild West video and I got to choreograph with them and do this whole wacky little thing. And, but it was really, really fun. Really fun. I can imagine. You know, you, you kind of mentioned this a minute ago when you were talking about how you called and you said, do they have legs? But how does the choreography change? I, I imagine it must be different when you're dealing with puppets as opposed to dealing with people. How does it change? Well, it was so much fun because obviously you're working with human beings and the right. way that the set is, they're under. So if they're sitting at a table, the humans are underneath the table. Right. And so with Sherry Netherland, there were two puppeteers and with the little rabbit, it was just one. But the two puppeteers on Sherry, I had to kind of navigate their bodies in order to get the hands going the way I wanted them to. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. So I don't know. It's always adapt and improvise. You know, you get in there and you plan it out. Like I figured out if I were doing it with humans, how the steps would be. Mm -hmm. And then I distilled it to the body parts of the puppets that could effectively display the movements. Yeah. So that's why I say they did a lot of like, they held, you know, like in a tango pose, and then their heads would do the bop, 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 bop. Right. And then they would change direction, or I would have the rabbit run around Sherry <laughs> Netherland, which was <laughs> hilarious. You know, was, you gather all these new skills when you get to work with what seems like an obstacle, but ultimately is an incredible opportunity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. I'm curious to ask because I feel like most people when they're watching Sesame Street, especially the young kids watching, they're watching and they're typically learning something. When you went to Sesame Street, what do you think your biggest lesson was? Oh, gosh. It was to not worry about losing some piece of choreography that I thought was cool mm. on paper. Mm -hmm. because it didn't translate mm -hmm. to what they were doing and to be flexible. Mm. I learned how to be flexible a little bit more and to really just have fun because ultimately, you know, I'm like a working dog. Like I got a call yesterday about a potential project and yeah. I was up from three o'clock to six o'clock 
already working on the show. I don't even have the job yet. I have like, are you interested? You know, that's how my brain goes. My friend Brad Kay, who's a creative director for Disney Parks and everything. Yeah. He's like, you got to help me. I'm pitching to be the designer for the new 40th anniversary parade at Tokyo Disneyland. And he's like, I'll get you a little money. I'm like, cool. Yeah. So we would just get on Zoom and brainstorm. And he would say, so this is the IP I want to use. And right. I would say, okay, so we need to sort of create a theme and kind of story, although story is loose when it comes to a parade, but there's concepts, right? Sure. But I got into it. I was like, okay, this is what we're going to. And then he got furloughed like a week before we're supposed to pitch it to the whole team in Tokyo. Oh my gosh. So he calls me and he goes, you're going to have to do the pitch. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Brad, I don't want to lose this job for you, but I'll do my best. You know, I mean, I had a script, we had it all figured out. But I think what they saw in that initial presentation was a big kid. Like I was just so excited yeah. to do it. And I was so excited about the project and I did my best. And he called me back and he said, we have a call back. So he did the next round. And then he calls me and he goes, I got it. Ah, amazing. So come with me to Tokyo. I'm like, what am I going to do? Because they have a whole staff. Tokyo Disneyland is owned by oriental land company it's not owned by disney so there's an american disney entity on the park site but olc they run the show they yeah. run the show so i said what do i do he goes just bring ideas and and i said well i know i can bring a cool choreographer who i think would be really great to infuse some new ideas into the park choreography and i brought Scotty Wynn, who's a Vietnamese-American choreographer. He's fantastic. I worked with him at Ringling Brothers 12 years ago, and I just called him out of the blue. I had to track him down because I hadn't talked to him in 10 years plus. And I was wow. like, you want to go to Tokyo? And we ended up three trips to Tokyo between November of 22 through March of 23. And they loved him. We just had the best time. I brought in folklorico experts to help with the cocoa float. I brought in a swing dance expert to help with the up float. And I just loved working with the creative people in Tokyo. We just had such a good time. And I didn't love going to the park at six in the morning and running the parade before the park opened. <laughs> well, sure. But ultimately it was just an adventure of a lifetime and so cool. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm doing this at my age. I'm like getting to do this, you know? Oh, that's so cool. As somebody who grew up with Disney and going to the parks and watching the Disney movies and, you know, the whole nine, every time I get to work for Disney, I become like you described a little kid where it's just this, Oh my gosh, I'm working at Disney. And, and, you know, even though, you know, those 6 a.m. call times at the park are hard, it's, it's also kind of cool because you're in the parks and you're alone and it's a, a kind of a world you've never seen before. And there's something that's very zen and very special about it. Yeah, it's really special. And again, it's really about the people. Just, you know, A+. plus. Now, was this the first time that you had worked on a parade? Well, I did Ringling Brothers okay. in 2010, which was really wacky because I got that job because 
one of the Feld sisters' husbands saw ragtime, which is, you know, if you think Ringling Brothers, ragtime. Okay, how does that? So really, it was wild. And I got this call. Do you want to meet to talk about directing a Ringling Brothers three-ring circus? And I'm like, yeah, of course I do. Sure. So I did. And I did a parade, which is how they open every circus is a parade. Talk about what did you learn? I learned about the music mapping, how they map the music. I'm like, oh, you mean it's like a disco track? Like everything is the same beat, right? Uh, and they go, yes, Marsha, it's kind of like that, but we don't call it that anymore, you know? <laughs> so I was, <laughs> but it is every song, you know, because right. I said, ooh, couldn't we have a little rhythm change here? They go, no, you can't, no, you no. can't change the tempo. You can change the feel, but it, it's got to sit on the same tempo. Right. Because throughout the park, they've got the speakers that are hitting that tempo so that whether it's the start of the parade or the end of the parade, everything's in sync, right? And and you're all hitting that same tempo so that I imagine it makes all of it very seamless, right? Yeah. It's magical. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like, <laughs> because when we would watch a run through, we would watch till the final float came out and then mm-hmm. we would cut across to see the end of the parade. Right. Yeah. Let's say the parade runs 35, 40 minutes. I would see the first 10 and the last 10. So I would right. see them all come out. I wouldn't follow the first float because then you wouldn't see everything. Right. So we would cut across and then see everything go to the finale. And what was great was learning how to close the gate at the end of the parade because I was like, oh, we have to have the like an advertisement float at the end. Yeah. Because they're paying for it. Right. So the float goes, but I put dancers behind it. So the advertisement float went away and the dancers who were wearing these beautiful pinwheels on their backs pinwheeled and then turned around and then waved and then the gate closed. So it was like, that's the kind of stuff you learn from being out on the parade route because. Right. I was like, yeah, we have to like end it with theatrics. Yeah. Give it some fanfare, right? What do you think the hardest thing is about working on a parade that maybe kind of took you by surprise compared to the things you've done throughout your career, whether it was in TV or theater? The multiple casts of every role. We couldn't take any pictures during rehearsal. Very tight security. I wish I could have, but there was the day I worked with the Miguels in the Coco float with their big guitar. Mm -hmm. And there were like eight Miguels. And each of them were given a scenario and a series of moves. And Mm -hmm. so they weren't all doing it in unison. They were all bringing their own personality to it. And then they put the big head on and the gloves and their Miguel, like it's crazy. Yeah. So to stand in a room and watch eight different performers to the same track, but not necessarily doing the same thing at the same time was Mm -hmm like a little mind boggling. 
you know, I felt like a bobblehead a little bit. I was like, (laughs) but I was able to say, yes, this person is very good at the guitar gestures, but let's work on the lower body and the way that they're positioning their feet and that kind of thing. And what I tried to do with this parade too was infuse more specific gesturing for each character rather than having sort of a default heel raised toe and a fast wave. So like, I didn't think any of the princesses on the princess float, like Pocahontas and Moana should wave like this. You know, I said they should be strong and have gestures that are, that show strength and power. So that's the kind of stuff I was very pointed with my Japanese colleagues. I said, you really have to get away from that default Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, happy, because every character isn't the same. Every character is different. When I've worked for Disney in the past, I've done a few things like you in the parks as well. And uh, one time I had to work on one of the parades and uh, I got to talk with some of the Disney princesses and they told me their technique for how they do the princess wave. And I'm curious if you learned the same technique that I will now share with you and our audience, which (laughs) makes me feel like I'm the Julie Andrews character in The Princess Diaries or something. (laughs) Uh, If you want to wave like a princess, all you do is you act as if you're cleaning a window. So you go right to left, left to right. There's a spot. Wow. There's a spot. So it's down, down, hello, hello, down, down, hello, hello. <laughs> it isn't that. And so you you hear this and then you start watching the parade and you're like, I'll be gosh darned if not every single one of these princesses is doing the exact same washing the window technique. You know, there's a spot, there's a spot. <laughs> I never instructed the princesses in my parade that way, but I'm sure there are techniques because there were character coaches who work with all of the people who wear faces, like the Miguel and the characters from Zootopia that put the big heads on. And then there's other coaches who work with the human characters, which are the prince and princesses. We created for this parade a gesture that will be repeated by each entity in each float. So because it was called Harmony and Color and it was like a rainbow was our theme song, this Mm. number seven in sign language became our wave. Oh, that's cool. So even Minnie and Mickey with their three fingers, you know, they only have like three fingers. (laughs) Right. Everybody at some point did this little gesture. And my goal was to get everyone that goes to see this parade going through the park and bumping into people on the subway in some other neighborhood and going like this. And you would know that they saw (laughs) Harmony and Color because they did the wave. So... That was something I tried to infuse. And my counterpart in Japan, Ariga-san, she said, we never did that before. So I loved when they would say to me, "That's cool. 
we never did that before. And like with Scotty's choreography, yeah. it was hard and it was challenging. And they have to do the numbers 11 times, basically, because that's how many loops it is for the right. parade, right? And Scotty and I were like, they could do it. They could do it. And they wanted to do it. But they do get tired and there's wind to contend with and heat mm -hmm. to contend with. So they have modifications for all those. Oh, that's fascinating. But we were strong about wanting to really elevate it and make it really artful. And we got a lot of great feedback. We've gotten, I mean, every day on Instagram, I see some other capture of elements of the parade. And there were some reviews or something that said it was the best parade ever. So I love that. I mean, that's a pretty good review. I think so. And they did single out the dancing, which I was sort of the supervisor. Yeah. So that was exciting. Oh, yeah. Well, we talked about this a little bit earlier, that this is not the first time you've ever worked with Disney, because a few short years ago, you and I had the pleasure of working on a show together pre-pandemic that was called Encore. Yes. Which, for anybody listening that has not seen Encore, it's easily one of the greatest things, I think, that has ever been on a streaming service that sadly has since been plucked off as part of a purge, if you will, recently, kind of across all of uh, the new media services. Mm. But the general premise behind Encore, as of course you will remember, Marsha, was the idea that we would go to high schools and we would find these high school theater groups and theater companies that had put on a show 10, 20, 40, 50, however many years ago, and we would have them do an Encore performance all these years later of these incredible musicals. And so I'm really interested we worked together, but obviously you were more into the theater. I was more behind the stage of the television production aspect of it. But it was one of those very unique things because I remember when I first got the call to go and work on Encore. And this is where I'm interested to kind of exchange some stories here because the call that I got was, hey, we're doing this show. It's called Encore. You know, here's the premise. And as a guy who is a theater kid at heart who now works in television, I was like, oh my gosh, this is an easy guess, right? I love theater. I love this whole premise. Th this is a no-brainer. And then I remember after I said yes, I, I hung up the phone and it dawned on me. And then it really dawned on me and started to kind of hit home when we were working on the show. The realization I had was, oh my gosh. This is two shows in one, right? Because there was the show that was happening on the theater stage. And then there was the television show that was capturing what was happening on the theater stage. And you have all these moving parts behind the scenes and all of this. There's just so much going on. It's easily one of the biggest shows I've ever worked on. And it was a heck of an experience for myself and for our entire production crew. But I know it was also one heck of an experience for you as well. And so I'm really interested in how did you first get involved with Encore? Um, Coy Middlebrook called me out of the blue. And I know that the pilot episode he directed 
and he was all set to direct the first official episode, Annie. And he realized I can't produce and direct this first one. I have to be more supervisory. So he knew about me through, we had met, I think back in years before at the Sacramento music circus, which is a big tented theater in Sacramento. It seats about 1100 people. I did a bunch of shows over the years there. And he just called me out of the blue. He goes, we're going into production like in a month and I need a director. And this is the premise. Are you free? And I was like, yeah, bring it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. So they sent me the script for Annie and he goes, you have five days. And I actually stage huge musicals in about seven days when I work at the Muni, which is this 11,000 seat theater in St. Louis. So I'm sort of the queen of fast. So encore was great for me, but, and they were putting me with a new choreographer who I hadn't worked with before Melinda Sullivan, who was great. Mm -hmm. And they said, okay, so you have these days are your days for staging. And then we shoot, you know, and then we perform it for friends and family on the fifth day or whatever. Well, I didn't know that my day was going to be broken up by, I need Daddy Warbucks for an interview. So like, okay, well, we were just going to stage that entire scene with Daddy Warbucks. So I have no Daddy Warbucks. All right, I'll go work with Miss Hannigan. So it was all adapted, improvised and catch as catch can and take whoever I could get when I get them. And it was my crazy idea to put the drama teacher into the Annie episode. The other cool thing about Encore was we had the adults who had done their high school musical. And with Annie, they had done it 20 years ago, which was like a perfect amount of time because everybody went off to become adult humans and their lives Mm -hmm. were all over the place. Um, The one woman who played Annie really wanted to be an actor. So she had gone to New York and, and ended up meeting her soon to be husband and they moved back to Vista, California. So the drama surrounding it all of the dynamics of the people was fascinating. And I think that our producers and directors really knew that they were onto something. Like the guy that played Rooster in rehearsal, Melinda and the music director and I, we would just hang our heads and go, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? He's just, he can't sing, he can't dance, he can't act. And then right. we do the show for the friends and family, and he freaking pulled it out. He was yeah. fantastic. It was like yeah. crazy. Yeah. So it was just kooky. So that when Coy called me to come back and do Ragtime, I said, Okay, first of all, do you have the rights? Because I know ragtime drama. I know ragtime. You know ragtime. Right. <laughs> just just right, exactly. full stop, period. You know ragtime. <laughs> we'll get into that next. But yes, you know ragtime. <laughs> I know ragtime. And they go, oh, yeah, we have ragtime junior. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'd like to see that. Well, ragtime junior was 281 pages. It was not ragtime junior. It was ragtime. So I was at the Muni actually in rehearsal for Cinderella or something I was doing there. And every night I'd come home and red line ragtime. And so I finally got it down to like 47 pages. 
and sent it to Koi and said, here's the reduction. This is what we'll do. And the cast for Ragtime were only out of school 10 years. They were a mess, which makes for great TV, right? But they were also at a school that was religious. So there wasn't a lot of drama, but the drama was the fact that we wrangled people who hadn't done the show to be in the show so they couldn't sing actor dance. So that was drama. And our Houdini, she was drama. I kind of read her the riot act on camera. I think I made it to the final edit too, but it was fun. You know, normally when you're directing or doing choreography, you don't have a camera crew that is watching the entire creative process. Obviously very different here for Encore where the camera is literally watching everything that you guys are doing behind the scenes as you are directing, as you guys are going through choreography, because that is quite literally three quarters of the story, right? It's not really about what they're doing on stage at the end. It's more in this particular show, the process of how they get to the end. It's the journey, not the destination. And so I'm interested to know during the production, what was that like? Was that just a giant pain in the arse for you? Because you weren't normally used to having cameras in your rehearsals? It was different. And I had such nice support with all of the crew. I mean, Mm. the stage managers who were kind of assigned to me to sort of make sure I was in the right place at the right time. I didn't wear an earpiece or anything. So either they'd run over and say, okay, you're going to do that again. And this time ask this kind of thing. So that was the hard part. Being spontaneous and just Mm. doing what I do And having that capture didn't really bother me. It was when I was asked to go back and revisit something and Mm -hmm. put pressure. So like in Annie, the episode where the guy that played Daddy Warbucks, Mm -hmm. when he did the show in high school, he had cancer and he lost all his hair to chemotherapy. So he came with kind of a buzz, right? He doesn't have much hair. Right. They wanted me to ask him to shave his head. And I was like, what? He has no hair. Like, he doesn't even. They're like, no, do it. Ask him to shave his head. So I was like horrified. I was like, okay. So, but I did. I went in there and the tears came and it was very moving. And he ended up calling his wife. And saying they want me to do this. And she said, do it. And he did it. Yeah. And it was, I think, on some level cathartic for him. Yeah. I think so, too. As a director and working in the theater all these years, we deal with human emotions in a very fragile and profound way. And we want Mm. people to bring their A game, which a lot of times means They have to dig deep to connect to the situation they're in. So if you're doing a show like Ragtime and, you know, you're talking to the guy who plays Cole House Walker and he had in the second act, he has to become basically a terrorist. And you have to have these deep conversations and these and navigate through kind of complicated waters And I always say, I'm not a therapist, I'm a director, and I will do my best to help you, but I want you to make sure you're never going to a place that's too vulnerable. 
And so in that moment with that man, who's not really an actor, to get him Mm -hmm. to go back and relive a really painful time in his life, I was challenging. I felt for him, but it made for really good TV and I don't think he regrets it. Yeah. So I did my best to kind of go in there and deal with him in that way, knowing sometimes a role may fit too closely to painful memories. But, you know, if you study Stella Adler or Stanislavski, it's all about getting in touch with those real emotions, right? You hit on something really fascinating here because... In my experience in television, I've kind of worked the gauntlet from what we call the kind of quote-unquote trashy reality television all the way through the scripted and award-winning and what have you. And in some of the trashy reality TV at times, the producers, the stage managers, they're coming in and they're stoking a fire because they want to see a fight. They want to see stuff that's just for the purpose of seeing stuff. They're grabbing the low-hanging fruit and... Frankly, it's just trash. It's garbage, right? It doesn't fuel the soul. It's not cathartic for anyone. It's just a small, easy ratings grab. And that wasn't the case for Encore, right? Because when you were asked to go to this gentleman and ask if he would be interested in shaving his head to kind of, you know, dive deeper into this role, it was done out of an intent of honoring that place And saying, you know, let's go a little bit deeper here and let's explore this further because there is a story here. And that's something that I like to think came across so well in the entire series of Encore because it all kind of goes back to this nostalgia and the idea that we're going back and we're reliving the past and we're confronting the past and we're honoring the past. And all of these things, I kind of get goosebumps kind of talking about it because you felt that on set and the entire crew respected that. And, you know, there were times when we put the cameras down because people were getting emotional and they never went for the low hanging fruit. We always went for what was deep, what was meaningful, what was nostalgic. And I think that every single time it paid off. And I remember we would always ask the cast members at the end of each show as they were leaving, what's it been like? And nine times out of 10, the reactions and the responses were, I can never begin to put into words what this has been like. To be able to essentially travel in a time capsule 40, however many years ago, and experience this and relive this and confront some of the things that I haven't confronted Since high school. Yeah, since high school. I mean, I watched every episode. I mean, I know I was partial to the two that I worked on, but (laughs) when I saw Allie Stroker come and talk with that young man in Oklahoma in the wheelchair. Oh, beautiful. I was a goner. What a beautiful affirmation of his disability. I mean, come on. It was gorgeous. I mean, that, that's kind of what I'm talking about, is that this entire series, they did this time and time again on each episode, on each of the performances, where we went in and we honored this and we made sure that it was benefiting the overall. And it wasn't about the final product. What happened on stage happened on stage, but it really wasn't about that. That's not what the show was about. 
That's where the magic of our producers and directors were because looking at the raw footage and just being in the trenches every day with the crazy people. Yeah. You don't see it in that moment, do you? You don't know how the whole edit is going to work. Yeah. And I remember get these wonderful texts from Alicia going, this was great day. It was a great day. I was like, okay, good. I'm so glad because I had no idea how it was all going to be put together. It must have been expensive, though, like you say, all those moving parts. Yeah. I was working with television creatives who were making scenery for theater, but it had to be shot for television. So that was a whole different thing. Yeah. There were a lot of things on that show that I, I think the majority of our crew maybe hadn't experienced before because it was this show within a show kind of thing. And, you know, we're doing theater, but for television and just all of these different elements that kind of came together. And without question, one of the harder shows that I think a lot of us had ever worked on, but also at the same time, one of the most rewarding. And I know that a lot of the crew felt that way because, you know, we came into every day, we did the long hours and the long days and the long weeks because we all ultimately believed in what we were doing. We saw the vision and that's not every single production you work on. Right. But this was kind of a special one in that regard. Very special. I'm really glad because I teach a little, you know, I run my private studio, but if I go to do a master class at a university or something, nine times out of 10, it used to be 20, 30 years ago, they would ask me about Closer Than Ever or the show that I did it with Bill Finn at the public. But now they go, oh, encore. (laughs) Right. That's the new thing to talk about, right? Yeah. So I need something like that to keep me, you know, relevant. (laughs) You're, You're still pretty relevant even before encore. And this is actually a perfect segue into what we were kind of teasing a little bit earlier. We said that you know ragtime. And a part of the reason that you know ragtime is because you yourself have directed ragtime for Broadway. You were a Tony nominee for Best Director in Ragtime. And that's not a light sentence. That's a pretty hefty thing. And so I'm really interested... Uh, You know, this podcast traditionally focuses on TV and film, but I can't have a Tony nominee sitting in front of me and not talk about the time that she was nominated for a Tony. So (laughs) you've got to tell me when it comes to ragtime. I mean, even now as we're talking, I just kind of see you lighting up the second I say ragtime. (laughs) I can only imagine the world of memories that these thoughts begin to unlock from a time that has to have been one of the biggest highlights of your career. Yeah, it was one of the most remarkable adventures. I had done a production of Susicle for Linearns and Steve Flaherty with a theater company for young audiences called Theater Works USA. They liked it so much, we got to do it as part of Free Summer Theater at the Lucille Lortel Theater off-Broadway in 2007. And then a year later, I'm on a road trip with my husband and daughter, and we're in Pennsylvania driving to Michigan from New York. And the phone rings, and it's Steve and Lynn, very excited, saying, we want you to direct Ragtime at the Kennedy Center. 
we want you to do what you did to Susical and do it with ragtime. I was like, I'm in Pennsylvania. I might lose reception, but yes, thank you. I'll, if Yes, let's figure this out. And so it was wild. And then we went to the Kennedy Center and they put me together with Derek McLean, who did the sets, and Don Holder, who did lights. And we were renting the Santo Laquasto costume package that he had designed for the original production. And, and I had wanted some changes and things. And so we had a guy named Jim Halliday, who was kind of the keeper of the costumes, work with me on those changes. And then that thing happened that you always hope for when you're a regional theater director. All these people from New York started coming down to the Kennedy Center to see the show. Manny Eisenberg, the great producer, and Kevin McCollum, Roger Berlin, and all these just like... So anyway... I tried to just breathe through it. And, you know, my parents and my family all came to the Kennedy Center to see the show because I said, this is as close to Broadway as I'm probably going to get. It's a big deal. It's the Kennedy Center, for goodness sake. So everybody schlepped from Michigan to come and see it. And then I get this call saying, we're moving to New York. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's insane. So we started getting ready for Broadway. And we couldn't just pick up our set and move it to a Broadway theater because the Kennedy Center is like a stadium. Right. And the Broadway huge. theaters are small, right? So Derek and I and Peter Lawrence, our production supervisor, started visiting theaters. And it was the most just amazing, like going into the St. James and standing there and going, hmm, should we do our show here? You know, it was like... <laughs> What is happening? So anyway, we ended up at the Neil Simon, which had lovely zeitgeist for me because I had worked as an associate on something there years and years ago and when it was the Alvin Theater. And so it was just Mm. exciting. And I love being on 52nd Street. And anyway, so we were at the Neil Simon, and it was all going really well. We had to do a little bit of recasting, but most of the cast from Washington came. We did all these promos with Edgar Dottrell. We took a boat, and we went to Ellis Island, and we did interviews with the New York Times and photo shoots, and it was just like... And then we did the Broadway performance in Times Square, the live on Broadway, the season, all the shows that are going to be in that season, and It was just being invited into a community that I had so longed to be a part of, but had sort of like, I kind of had to readjust my dreams along the way and say, I don't know Mm. if I'll ever make it to Broadway. And that's okay. I have a really cool career, you know? Mm. So we opened and it was that classic party where someone got the review from the New York Times and you just felt this sadness sort of go through the whole place and it wasn't a rave and you would think that the next day they would be figuring out how to keep us going right but we closed 11 weeks later and it was truly a heartbreak so as high as i felt getting there the heartbreak honestly i'm not gonna lie to you i still feel it i still feel like we just if we had run two more months you know if we had made it through the tony so we could 
have really competed for the best revival. I don't know why it didn't last. I don't know if I'll ever know why. But I had that moment. It's like Camelot, you know, one brief shining moment. And then we closed in January. And then all of a sudden the awards started coming, the nominations. And it was like, wow. So I got nominated for a Tony, for Drama Desk, for both Mm -hmm. direction and choreography. And a Stair Award, that blew my mind. Because as a choreographer... Ragtime's not a dance show per se. It's not a Casey Nicola extravaganza, yeah. right? But it is choreographed from top to bottom because that's how I work. And that's my way into storytelling is through movement and behavior. And to be recognized by the Astaire Awards was really exciting. And I would, that was a phone call when I called my parents. My mother particularly loved that I was being nominated for something named after Fred Astaire. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. When I got the nomination, I was working in regional theater. I was in Los Angeles. I was at Reprise Theater Company doing a production of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying with Josh Grisetti and Simon Helberg. And John (laughs) O'Hurley. And just a, a whole bunch of wild funny people and I got the nomination and it was just like surreal you know mm. so because my husband had to call me at like five o'clock in the morning or something because they you know they announced him at eight o'clock in the morning right here. yeah so that was you know upsetting and then I I missed the first Tony event for the nominees but I was able to go to the Tony luncheon which they held at the Plaza Hotel, and that was really fun. I was like a kid in the candy store. I was just going up to people with my phone, taking selfies with everybody. (laughs) Leah Shriver and Angela Lansbury was there. Like, all these, yeah, just crazy. Oh, I became friendly with Valerie Harper. We met at the luncheon. I worked with her on Dancing with the Stars, and she was such a sweetheart. Oh, that's amazing. I get the sense that as you tell this story that in many ways, this was kind of a culmination of your childhood dreams. And obviously there are things that you wish may have continued on, but when you, you talk about how the highs were highs and the lows were lows, but at the end of the day, this was all really what you had kind of dreamed about doing as a kid, right? Oh, yeah. I grew up watching the Tony Awards when I was a kid. Every June on a Sunday night, we would all gather. And I don't know if I practiced my acceptance speech or not, but (laughs) I love Broadway and I love musicals and I love the theater. So it was so exciting. And we also I got invited. They don't call it Gypsy of the Year anymore. I can't remember what the new name is, but it's an event where the ensembles of all the productions perform and then raise money for Broadway cares, equity fights AIDS. And they invited me to be a judge. And the hosts of that particular event were Hugh Jackman and Daniel Craig, and they were announcing the judges. So I'm sitting with Michael Cerveris and (laughs) Montego Glover and just some other starry people. And Hugh Jackman announced me at the Palace Theater, and 
I heard like a roar and I stood up and the whole place was like applauding. And I was like, that's insane. Like what I think because I represented all those people who do what I do, who work in regional theater, who do it for the love of it. And because it's a calling, we do it because we have no other choice. It's Mm. who we are, right? Mm -hmm. I think in that moment, I really represented all of my colleagues who do what I do and got to that opportunity in that way. So, I mean, I know there are people who set out to work on Broadway and stay in New York and pioneer their careers but I found so much joy and amazing opportunity in the regions and all these different communities that I work in from Los Angeles to Cleveland, to Cincinnati, to St. Louis, to Jupiter, Florida, to Boston, Massachusetts, like all over. It's just a different trajectory, you know? Yeah. I love that. You know, we we oftentimes when we're watching the Tonys on TV or when we talk about these things or even we're having these dreams as young people, there's always this kind of perception that everything is glamorous. Everything is perfect. You know, the whole swimming pools and movie stars and the whole glitz and glam and everything that goes with it. And what I love about what you just shared is that it's so darn real. You know, you're, you're saying that, yeah, it was amazing. It was all of these things, but also kind of, it was the best of times. It, it was, was the, the worst, worst of times. times. Yeah. Yeah. I think people don't talk about that enough. And I love that you have brought this lens to it because I know I've never heard that before quite like this. And so I think it's just so interesting and I'm positive that there are others out there that have been in this position just like you, whether it's theater or film or, you know, what have you. This is kind of a a universal theme throughout the entertainment industry. You know, we talk about shows getting pulled early off of Broadway, but regardless to what it really is, whether it's Broadway or a show getting pulled off of Disney Plus or whatever, the pain and the difficulty and you pour all of your love and you put everything you've got, the blood, sweat, tears, and then some, it gets this incredible recognition. It gets accolades and all of this. But then at the same time, in some ways and by some definitions, it still falls short. And that's a bittersweet thing. It's frustrating, but it's also a very proud moment. I know, I know. That's gotta be really hard to come to terms with all those emotions, right? Yeah. There's a little glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. I got a call last year, Cincinnati College Conservatory in Cincinnati is where Stephen Flaherty graduated and they were honoring him. And they did a big concert in September of last year and I got invited to direct it. And it went really, really well. So on January 14th of 2024, we're going to do a little time capsule and bring the entire show to Carnegie Hall. The show that you had done. And it's all CCM alums. Oh, wow. Me and one other person are not CCM alums, but we're there by association because 
I directed the revival of Ragtime and this other woman was in that revival, but is also married to the book writer who did go to CCN. <laughs> so wow. it's like this crazy little show that keeps on giving as yes. it were. And I get to celebrate Steve and Lynn. We're adding Lynn more involved in this production for Carnegie Hall. So it'll be an honoring of Steve and Lynn and yeah. ragtime is kind of the centerpiece of the evening. And I get to stage my opening number with 25 musical theater students and 14 Broadway alums. And, you know, it's wow. going to be very exciting. In Carnegie Hall, nonetheless. Yeah. In Carnegie Hall. Practice, practice, practice. <laughs> yeah. Don't give up the ship. That's what's so amazing about this career. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen to that. You just never know what's around the corner, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Well, count me in. I'll be there. I'm going to find a ticket. Let me tell you. I'm going to go on Ticketmaster right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. You know, I want to know, with every project that you've worked on, what do you find is the thread that connects them all when they become a success? And I know success can take many different definitions, but I'm curious, just kind of from a 30,000-foot view, what do you think makes a production ultimately a success? Oh, wow. I strive for excellence on stage, meaning every element that's up there is devised, designed, performed by people who are working at the top of their game. And putting that all together and being sort of the chef of mm. that is when all these parts work together. Mm. That creates a successful show. I just finished a Johnny Cash musical at the Cincinnati Playhouse. And at the end of the second week of the run, and these are fixed runs at regional theaters there. They don't have open-ended runs like on Broadway right. or commercial theater, they have a set time frame and they met their goal and exceeded it in the second week of the run. And oh. I think that's not just because the title had appeal, but because the people came and saw it and were moved and felt something and were invigorated by the performances and talked about it and got other sure. people to come because of it. So yeah. I think when everybody's firing on all cylinders and doing their best work, that's hopefully the recipe for success. Yeah. There's safety in the regional theater in my world because I know it's going to last X number of weeks, but it's finite. Yeah. It's easier on the heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who do you think is the greatest person in your career to date that you've had the pleasure of working with? Oh, wow. I know this is going to be a tough one because I can only imagine the amazing people that you've had the chance to work with throughout your career. Yeah. I mean, oh, my goodness. I worked with Peter Scolari on a production of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Boy, we lost him too soon. Yeah. He was just remarkable and before him the same show but years before i worked with gary beach do you know who gary beach is 
You know, I've heard the name, but honestly, I don't know much more. Gary was the original Roger Debris in The Producers. Oh, wow. And was in the revival of La Caja Fall and was okay. a Tenardier in Les Mis. But he taught me so much about comedy and how to land a laugh without asking for it. Mm. And he was one of the funniest and dearest people I ever knew. I would say those two pseudolises were like my favorite people. Peter was cerebral and Gary was physical and vocally adept. And they both died too soon. soon. Yeah. Those are some good answers. I mean, I've had some starry people that I work with. Oh, well, please go on. Don't let me stop you. I worked with Jonathan Price on a concert of My Fair Lady. And I worked okay. with Michael York on that same concert. And Cloris Leachman in that same concert. Oh, legend. Wow. I'm also dying to know, did you ever work with Stephen Sondheim? I have worked with Mr. Sondheim, and that was an, a, an amazing experience. I actually have hours and hours of videotape from that production of Merrily We Roll Along at the Arena Stage, and I'm desperate to have it digitized and create like a little documentary of the making of Merrily Who Roll Along. Oh my gosh. I have the stuff. I mean, let's do it. Say the word and we'll do it. <laughs> let's do it because I have it digitized. I just have to go through the hours of video, but I think there's a real opportunity there because he and I worked really hard together on Bobby, Jackie and Jack. So that particular number has elements of development that he coached that I think would be a cool 40, 50, 60 minute little piece. I'm sorry. You're telling me that you have never before seen tapes of you and Stephen Sondheim. I mean, come on. I feel like between the two of our brains, we can come up with something. Yes, of course. I'm duh. Like, who am I talking to? So yeah, we'll sidebar after. Especially because, you know, everyone's like, oh, are you going to go see Merrily Rolong? And I'm like, I love all those people. And Lindsay Mendez yeah. was my student and she's phenomenal. And I'm so proud of her, but I cannot watch someone else's Merrily Rolong. Oh, that's very interesting. This is actually, I'm glad you brought this up because this is something that I have a hard time with. Uh, when I was like 18 years old, just out of high school, very excited to just kind of be anywhere near the industry. I would go to like weekly talk show tapings or just basically anything that had a live studio audience so that I could just be a part of it and I could just soak it all in. And now you couldn't pay me enough money to sit in a studio audience and watch a TV taping. <laughs> you know, my parents come into town for Christmas and they're you know, we want to go see Ellen. And I'm just like, you guys, you go have fun. Have a good time. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm interested if that translates with you and Broadway shows. You don't want to sit next to me if I've done the show. Oh, I, I, I feel like I do want to sit next to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, my husband is like, I'm not going to go see that show. He knows. Like, it's hard. You know, I get very proprietary about it 
So, I mean, I wish them well with Merrily, and I have a feeling it'll be a big hit. I actually saw the final performance of the original production. That's very cool. And when I got asked to do it, we actually had a meeting at Sondheim's townhouse on 49th Street, and that was an amazing experience to yeah. ding dong. Hello, come on in, Steve. Like, And then he had to take a call. This is like 1990, right? And Jeff mm-hmm. Saver's a music director and Doug Wager's the director. And Doug went to the bathroom and I go to Jeff, come mm-hmm. here. And we like snooped around in the back where there was this beautiful greenhouse where he had a big table and we were peeking next door and there's Catherine Hepburn having tea. Oh, come on. And this is 1990, no cell phones. So it's my word. Again, you know, Jeff was there, so I have a witness. But we were like peeking through the window, and there's Catherine Hepburn having tea. I don't think they cared much for each other, Mr. Sondheim and Miss Hepburn. That was the rumor we heard, but they were next-door neighbors. Ah, that's incredible. And his apartment was filled with games. You know, he was the inspiration for the play Sleuth. Lots of puzzles and games and things. And then when we were in residence at Arena Stage during the show, Sondheim was also flying back and forth to London. He just started teaching. He just turned 60 at the time. And whenever he'd come back to D.C. and join us, he always carried his rhyming dictionary with him. Wow. And he was very kind to me. He was extremely kind to me. And so smart probably the smartest person I ever met. Did you ever get a letter from Sondheim? I know he was famed for kind of writing letters to people. Yeah, I have a couple. I have a couple. That's so cool. What a neat thing to treasure. I also have a picture of Steve and George Firth that they gave to everybody on opening night and to everybody in the cast they wrote, You're my favorite one in the show. Love, Steve and George. (laughs) I took my husband with me to be my assistant because I was like, I'm not going to D.C. to work with Sondheim and leaving you in New York. So just come with me. Yeah. And you'll do whatever I need you to do. You'll schlep and get me coffee or you'll stand in when I need you to stand in when I'm figuring something out, whatever. And he goes, I'm in. So we got a picture right over here. It says... To Marge and Gower, love Frank and Charlie. And it's uh, Marge and Gower champion. That's how he referred to us. I was Gower and my husband, Tony, was Marge. So it was cute. How fun. I'm glad you bring up these mementos and treasures that you've collected because I heard a rumor that from every production you do, you have a bit of a memory box where you keep things from those productions. Is that true? I do have some treasures. I do have some letters from Sondheim. I have a beautiful letter from Kirk Douglas, who came to see Ragtime and wrote a note to the company and singled me out and said nice things about the direction and drew his little caricature. And I grabbed that baby. So I have that. Oh, that's cool. I did some work with Julie Andrews, so I have some lovely Christmas cards from Julie Andrews. Wait, what did you do with Julie Andrews? 
I worked at the Bay Street Theater in Long Island and Sag Harbor is the theater her daughter founded. So early on in the theater's history, Julie was always around. And then Julie and Emma wrote a musical called Simeon's Gift, and they asked me to direct it. And so I spent a Thanksgiving with Julie Andrews. Gosh, what a life you lead. In the beginning of the pandemic, I reached out to Bay Street because I was sitting here like, what do I do with myself? So I devised backstage with MMD at Bay Street Theater, and I invited people from all the shows I worked on to do a one-hour sort of chit-chat and picture memorabilia culminating in Julie Andrews and Emma and Simeon's Gift and I brought a whole bunch of people from the cast to like surprise them at the end. So all these Zoom boxes opened and Julie was like, oh my goodness. It was so sweet. It was the only episode we weren't allowed to take because she didn't want it. Oh. I have a a good Zoom shot of it. So, And you have some Christmas cards, it sounds like. And I have some Christmas cards. Yeah. And I have an iPad that Jonathan Price bought me because I used to tease him. We were doing an on-book staged concert of My Fair Lady, and he was using his iPad. And I'm like, you can't use that. It's My Fair Lady. You have to have a book and a binder. Henry Higgins can't walk around with an iPad. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. We did it at the Kennedy Center, and then we did it again at the Granada in Santa Barbara a one-nighter, and he presented me with an iPad. It was was actually from the cast, but... Oh, that's so cute. He suggested it because I teased him. My next question, some people listening might think I'm even crazy for asking this, but the question is, what is the most Hollywood thing you've ever experienced? I mean, you going to Sondheim's house definitely checks that box already. You getting Christmas cards from Julie Andrews. All all of these things count. But I am curious if there is something that has not been shared yet. So that's why I asked the question, what is the most Hollywood thing that has ever happened to you, Marsha Milgram Dodge? I got a good one. Like old Hollywood. Oh, I'm ready. Would the names Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman mean anything to you? Well, sure, of course. Okay. I choreographed a play that Joanne directed, and we would have meetings at their apartment on Fifth Avenue, and sometimes Paul would burst in and say, listen to my new label for my new Saccharuni pasta sauce. And we would just say, stop. And Paul would recite the label, put on his bifocals and read the label and then be gone. Right. So it was like nutsy cuckoo. Anyway, we go up to Woodstock and we're doing the show up there. And an actor that you might recognize was in the show. And this was before her big TV breakout, Allison Janney. Ah, Sure. So Allison was in the play. It was called Velvet Elvis. I spent like a month hanging out in Woodstock with Joanne and Paul. And he would drive me home from rehearsal in his phenomenal car sometimes. But the best part of that was months after the show, this was in the summer, my husband and I were trying to catch a cab on Amsterdam Avenue and 83rd Street. And... 
we turn and there's Paul and Joanne. And I'm like, hi, how are you? And we're like, and he goes, well, who is it? Marsha, I didn't recognize you out of context. And I'm like, Paul, are you fucking kidding me? Out of context? You, sir, are usually, you know, 60 feet wide and on a movie screen. Yeah. So talk uh-huh. about how to contact trying to catch a cab on Amsterdam Avenue. <laughs> That's pretty good. And then there's one more. There's a part C. I was choreographing a show at Goodman Theater with Bob Falls, and the play running while we were rehearsing was The Visit, starring Joe Summer, who's like best friends with Paul and Joanne. So I'm up in a meeting with Bob Falls and someone runs in and says, Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman are here. And I'm like, I'll be back in five. So I like run downstairs at intermission and I find them. And Paul looks me in the eye, like seriously looking me in the eye. And he goes, hide me. And I was like, oh, my God. Okay, come with me. And I like hid them in the rehearsal studio until intermission, till the bells rang and the lights flashed. And then he ran to the bathroom and then I took them back to their seats because people just pounce. Oh, sure. But to look, to see those beautiful blue eyes just like burrowing into my face. Yeah. Marsha, hide me. Yeah. That's a moment that sticks with you. How incredible. Uh, That really brings us to the end of Act Two, and we're bringing it home with my personal favorite part of the podcast, which is our famed Hollywood hot seat with a a little asterisk, because in this episode, it's kind of like a Broadway edition. So this is 10 rapid fire questions, and you give me the first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready to play the Hollywood slash Broadway hot seat? I'm ready. Ding, 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 ding. Hollywood hot seat. Here we go. Question number one. Favorite movie. Mm. Singing in the rain, maybe. Oh, great movie. I mean, if I had to pick one. I think that's a pretty safe answer. Yeah, I would say singing in the rain. All right. Question number two, favorite TV show? Oh, boy. The Dick Van Dyke Show. Oh, solid. Classic. I met Carl Reiner, and I told him I learned everything about comedy from him on that show. Okay, very good. Yeah, I love that show. I had the pleasure of working with Mr. Dick Van Dyke a few years back at the Disney Parks, actually. And as a result of working with him... I got invited to Dick Van Dyke's 90th birthday party that he had at Disneyland. One of the greatest human beings you will ever meet. He has such a heart of gold. Ah, just, oh my gosh. Every time you see him, you feel like you're in a hug, you know? We feel that. We feel that. Just his fan base, you know? We feel that. Yeah. But Rob Petrie and Laura Petrie and that whole gang... Just so crafted and smart and funny and real. Yeah, real for sure. Great answer. All right, number three. The fictional character I identify most with is... Oh, my gosh. 
you know, I'm not an actor, so it's tricky. I'm uh, ooh, fictional character. Bugs Bunny. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> yeah, I love Bugs Bunny. Very good. I'll take it. Number four, favorite musical. Oh, I would have to say favorite musical I've ever worked on, Ragtime Aside, On the Town, because it's comedy and in one and ballets and dream ballets. It's like everything. It's kitchen sink and it's tugs at your heartstrings. Yeah. It's Bernstein's score and it's Comden and Green. It's just, I think, one of the greats. Good answer. Next question here is favorite song. Oh my gosh. Anything from the Beatles. Like I'm a Beatles Ooh. gal. So Blackbird okay. in, in honor of my sister. Perfect. Next question favorite movie quote Does my ass look big? <laughs> I can see it, and I'm trying to, like, figure out what... It's a kooky little movie with, oh, gosh, your ass looks small is the retort. It's like a road movie. I'll have to get back to you. <laughs> they're a bumbling duo of just, they're a mess, and I love that line. <laughs> All right, next on the list, who is your Hollywood crush hall pass? Or, you know, for you, we can say Celebrity Hall Pass. Well, in his heyday, George Siegel. Mm. Danny Kay, too. Like those two, wow. I would say. The nice Jewish boys. Because I didn't marry a nice Jewish boy. I married a Gentile. But I had crushes on those two Jewish boys. Who is a talent that you are still dying to work with? Oh, my. Probably Audra McDonald. Oh, I like that answer. I directed a benefit for her. We celebrated her for the Drama League. And I had fun researching her past and her history and her connection to Ragtime, obviously. But she's the pinnacle. And talk about just a legend, right? Oh, wow. That's, that's a great answer. Yeah, I'm, I've brushed up against her, but I've never been yeah. in a room with her. That would be fun. Fantastic. Number nine, if you could trade places with anybody for a day, who would it be? George Gershwin. Ooh. I wish I could have written Rhapsody in Blue. I wish I could compose music. Yeah. Uh, that's such a great skill. I wish I could play piano. Yeah. I'm all in comments. Yeah. Oh, I feel that. I feel that. Our last question here. What is the best piece of advice that you have for working in this crazy world that we call showbiz? And who did that piece of advice come from? Came from my dad, who was a salesman. He didn't like to be called a salesman. He was president of sales of a family paint company. <laughs> but when I left Detroit to go to New York, he said, tell them who you are. And I said, okay, dad, I will. So I haven't been shy about, and I think I said it at the beginning of our chat, was I, I'll walk in a room and say, I'm Marsha Milgram Dodge. I love what you're doing at your theater. I would like to work there. And so there it's I've done it, and it's been good advice. Yeah. And it may not be as adorable now at my age as it was 30 <laughs> years ago. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you know who you're telling that you've done your homework and that you don't just 
want to attach yourself to somebody famous or somebody successful, but that you understand what they do and you want to be part of it and be truthful about that. I think that's beautiful. Great advice and a great way to bring this podcast to an end today. Marsha, thank you so, so much. This has been such great fun. Oh my gosh, you're so delightful. Oh, I could say the same to you. It has been an absolute thrill. I could listen to your stories for another 12 hours, so we're going to have to probably do this again sometime. I mean, we're going to sidebar about my uh, my videotape. Oh, I like the sound of that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> sound time like you've never seen before. Yeah. See, uh, it's going to be great. Well, I cannot thank you enough again. It has been so much fun having you here. Such a pleasure. And, you know, let's do it again sometime. Yes, please. Thank you. Kyle on the Isle is an official podcast of Magic Lamp Productions and is recorded in the heart of Hollywood, California. This episode was executive produced and directed by me, Kyle Olson. Produced by Natalie Izquierdo and Lauren Wilson. Editing by Cody Crabb. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and rate it five stars. Every single review goes a long way. And while you're at it, give us a follow on our social media channels at Kyle on the Island. Thanks for listening. I'm Kyle Olson, and I'll be saving you a seat next time on the Isle.